Salway. Hello, everyone. Salway. The Curiosalist podcast is back after a hiatus that occurred for no particular reason. And uh, so, yes, I'm here. I'm Harry, and I'm joined, as ever, by my faithful companion, Mr. Will Randall. Hello, everyone. It is good to be back. We are continuing our fairly fragmented series on ancient women, just a few months late with this episode. We are continuing with the Britain Queen Boudicca. And what she got up to, really, culminating in her battle of rather epic proportions, by the sounds of it, at Watling Street. This is all taking place in the first century AD in Roman Britain. The Romans have been around for a little while, and yeah, why don't you set the scene? Yeah, my pleasure. What was going on well, in Britain at this time? Well, we don't know a huge amount, unsurprisingly, from the, the furthest um, pots of antiquity. The Greeks and the Romans, I think, had a vague idea that there was an island called, well, not necessarily called Britain, but there was an island, and mostly it was a source of tin. I think Herodotus calls it the Tin Islands, doesn't he? Yes, yeah. So they knew they knew it was there, but they didn't know a huge deal about it um, and its size and its inhabitants and the language and whatnot. Funnily enough, Caesar was the supposed first person to really explore the, the island. That's Julius Caesar. When, when did he land, was that? That was... 40-something BC. That was 40, yeah. No, 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 it's 50s BC. It would have been 50s BC. 50s BC. Yeah. Um, So he was the first, well, attempted invasion. It wasn't necessarily a serious attempt to conquer the whole island. He eventually left after a year or so of a bit of campaigning. But he obviously did a great deal to explore the island itself and bring some knowledge of it back to Rome. But we have one or two explorers before his time who did a little bit of wandering around in their boats on the seas. The most well-known is a Greek man called Pythias from Marseille, modern-day Marseille in south of France. He's a very impressive man. He's, so he's from the 4th century BC and he supposedly sailed to Britain. He supposedly discovered the Arctic Circle, some people speculate, and found the Baltic Sea before coming all the way down. Obviously, we're not necessarily sure what's fact and what's fiction but we think it's on good authority that he did reach britain have a vague idea about the the, the general um geography yeah, of the I, think, area. I think we know that he definitely did britain i think the question is how far he went yeah he discovered this place called ultima thule yeah thule is like a generic term to used by people from the classical world to just refer to the furthest north yeah. island i think i think it was similar usage as saying if you went to Timbuktu, sort of yeah, in the middle of yeah. absolutely nowhere, essentially, I think the known world. Sort of you know, thing. some people think that if if he did reach right to the tips of Scotland, he he would have known Thule or assumed Thule to be Orkney, um, whereas other people just think that. Well, possibly Shetland. I well, actually yeah, read possibly. a very interesting uh, article about Pythias a little while ago, suggesting that his Thule was either the North Norwegian coast or more convincingly Iceland. Iceland would be a hell a hell of a trip. I think it's somewhat unrealistic, but you never know. I don't know. I don't know. You never you never know. You never know. Yeah, I mean he was certainly um determined to to travel the world. Yeah. Um but actually did you know there was a there was an earlier explorer who was a Carthaginian man called um Himilco who supposedly may have reached the island on some of his explorations. We don't really know if that's true or not. But the Carthaginians certainly did have a 
history of sailing around to wild exotic places. Some some people speculate mm. they went around all the way to West Africa and the Gold Cape. So um, it may well be true, but we're not really sure. And so then there's not really a great deal learnt about them until Caesar comes along in the 50s BC. And then in the 40s AD, the Emperor Claudius launches a full-scale invasion of the island and he conquers it up to... Well, essentially up to modern-day England, I think a bit further into Scotland at times, but Roman Britain essentially covered England and Wales. And then it was in the year 54 AD where Nero comes to power, and it's during his reign that we are most focused on. And there is a tribe in, well, mostly modern-day Norfolk called the Iceni. So they, yeah, mostly Norfolk, bits of Suffolk and Cambridgeshire, that kind of area. And they, they kind of rule the local area. In the reign of Nero, the chieftain, a man called Prasutagus, dies. And it became common practice for chieftains, you know, as a sign of peace, to bequeath their kingdom on their death to Rome or, you know, come to an arrangement with them. And Prasutagus was of the mind to bequeath half of his kingdom to the empire of Rome and half of it to his, to his family, to his wife, who happened to be a lady called Boudicca. But the Romans didn't really... The Romans didn't play ball. Yeah, they, they didn't really play by the rules, um, and they decided to just annex the kingdom for themselves. In typical Roman fashion. Which left a bit of a sour taste in the mouth of some of the local Iceni, not least because of some of the atrocities they committed. Yeah, it wasn't just annexing the kingdom of the Iceni. Tacitus has it that Boudicca herself was flogged and her daughters raped. The nobles were stripped of their ancestral properties and the king's relatives were held like menials. So it's fairly poor behaviour, really, from the Romans. Yeah. Ignoring the goodwill of Prasutagus and just doing a bit of land grabbing. Unsurprisingly, the Iceni were a bit miffed. Just a little bit. To say the least. Yeah. So they were up in arms, quite literally, and they convinced their neighbours, the Trinovantes, neighbours to the south, to join them and basically set about terrorising the East England down towards London. Yeah. So they rose up, and this started when the governor of Britain, Suetonius Paulinus, was campaigning on the island of Mona, which is modern-day Anglesey, where he was uh, busy, occupied, attacking women, waving firebrands around, and druids who were busy terrifying the Roman legionaries. Typical Anglesey. (laughs) Yeah, it all goes down on Anglesey. So then he heard that Boudicca was marching around with an estimated 120,000 troops, He obviously thought that it was about time to head back to deal with this. But walking down Watling Street from Anglesey back to, well, near London is quite a long way. That was going to take them several days. So in the meantime, Boudicca and the Iceni and their chums, the Trinovantes, had plenty of time to wreak some havoc. So they first hit Camulodunum, which is modern-day Colchester, and was the Romans' capital. It was, yeah. They particularly wanted to hit this because it had a large temple to the divine Claudius, Nero's predecessor as emperor, which was described as an Arx Aeternae Dominationis, or a citadel of everlasting despotism. So they were pretty, pretty keen to hit Camulodunum, which was also full of veterans who had mistreated the natives. So it was, it was an obvious target for the angry Britons. There was basically no one guarding it. The procurator, a man called Catus Decianus, 
sent all of 200 men from London to garrison Camulodunum. So it was a bit of a walkover. Colchester was ransacked and torched, and archaeologists have found a destruction layer, which would suggest that Boudicca had the place razed to the ground. Catus Decianus fled to Gaul and was never heard of again. Did you see... Well, have you, do you know what supposedly happened to a statue of Nero? Oh, there was a... Is this the, the statue that fell over? No, suppose... Well, from what I read, there was a bronze statue to Nero which stood in front of the temple to Claudius and the Britons decapitated it and then took it oh, as wow. a trophy to Boudicca. So I did not know that. whether that's true or not might be, you know, more speculation and symbolic, but... Mm. I, I read about another statue. There was a statue, I think, to Victory outside the temple, mm. which, as the Britons were approaching, toppled as if to be fleeing from them, which is probably interpreted after the event as some terrible omen. I think it's also probably worth noting that savagery that they sacked the place was yes. probably probably even outdid the Romans. I mean, there were some sources like Cassius Dio say that the noble women of the region were who were Romans were impaled on spikes and had their breasts cut off and sewn to their mouths. And he, he puts the death toll for the sacking of whereas not just Colchester but also London and St Albans at between seventy to eighty thousand people, which is quite quite monumental which, damage. Yeah, which is it's probably quite an overestimate. As always, we take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah. But even if it was half that, the devastation is pretty severe. So yes, the, the Britons sacked Camulodunum, the capital. They flattened Verulamium, modern-day St Albans, and then they made it down to Londinium, just slaughtering everything in their path. Really? Tacitus records in the Agricola that there was no form of savage cruelty that the angry victors refrained from which, yes, included cutting bits off and fairly unspeakable acts. In the meantime, Suetonius Paulinus is barrelling down Watling Street from Anglesey as fast as he can. Watling Street is... Quite a long road, too. Is a long road. It's 200 miles from Dover up to Roxeter in Shropshire. Yeah. And it crosses the Thames at London. Yes, it is a very long road. Do you know how much road... The Romans paved in Britain. Any any guesses at how much? I road? think I read something about it a while ago, but I've generally I'm not very good with guesses of distance. No, you could. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. if I had to guess, I could be wildly out. They paved around two and a half thousand miles of trunk roads in Britain. At the peak of the Roman Empire, throughout the entire empire, they paved over two hundred and fifty thousand miles. Oof. Which is testament to Roman engineering and logistics. Yeah. Marvellous. What did they ever do for us? They made roads. They made splendid roads. The, the route of Watling Street is now the A5. Yeah. So we, we owe the A5 to the Romans. <laughs> what a marvellous road it is. What a legacy. <laughs> <laughs> what a legacy. Anyway, Suetonius is charging down Watling Street and he picks a spot at which to try and halt the advance of the Britons. We don't actually know which spot he chose. There has been much speculation as to the location of the Battle of Watling Street, with locations suggested throughout Warwickshire, Leicestershire, Northamptonshire, Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire. Quite an extensive list of counties. We don't quite know. There are a couple of locations which would be good guesses, but we just don't know for certain. I find it strange that we don't 
No. Such a large battle. Yeah, such a bit. It's kind of like Mons Graupius, which was a one of Agricola's battles in Scotland. Yeah. Which is another big victory. Well, because you and think. I don't know where it is. If the the natives won, then it's understandable that they'd not note it down. But given the Romans won, you'd think they'd note it. Yeah. And write about it and assert where it is. But but no. Yeah. The the details are just they're just not there in the text. No. And I suppose there wouldn't be much archaeological remains because after a battle, people would just come and pick up all the spoils, you know, all yeah. the armor and the weapons. The bodies would be taken away and burned or buried. Yeah. So I, I guess you can understand why, but anyway, strange. So at some unknown point on Watling Street, Paulinus made his stand against an awful lot of people. So what numbers are we talking about then? Well, again... We cannot trust any numbers. No. Cassius Dio claims there were at least 230,000 warriors. If not 300,000. If not 300, indeed, which is a silly amount of people. Yeah, that's crazy. And definitely can't be correct. But even if it was up to 100,000 people, which is conceivable, Mm. that is still an awful lot of people. Yeah, when you compare that ratio to the Romans, I think we we, we seem to think it's about 10,000 men. Under Suetonius' Yeah, and command. I think that's a slightly more confident estimate. Yeah. Suetonius, yeah, he had roughly 10,000 men, which he was hoping would have been bolstered because the second legion, yeah. which was garrisoned in modern Exeter, and he ordered them to come up and fight, but the commander, Posthumus, he just didn't fancy it. No, he didn't. He was a coward. So he was, and did you uh, know that, um, spoiler alert, the Romans won? We'll explain more about it later. But um, when Posthumus heard that he denied his men a chance of glory, he then killed himself. Yeah, fell on his sword. Fell on his sword. So at least he did the honourable thing afterwards, but Suetonius didn't even need him in the end. It was all, it was all fine. Yeah. One of the big factors, I think, that contributed to the overwhelming Roman victory on Watling Street was this bizarre setup that the Britons had. Yeah, they kind of shot themselves in the foot, didn't they? They, they had their wagon train, which if it... If it was an army of 100,000 people, their wagon train, which had women and children, would have been massive. Yeah. Anyway, at the Britain end of the field, they set up their wagon train in this big crescent formation, basically creating a stadium where all the women and children just sat on, on the carts and could watch what they assumed would be an overwhelming victory. Yeah. But yes, it really backfired because they, uh, they, had, they couldn't get out. Suetonius had cleverly picked his spot. It was relatively hemmed in on either side. So this massive swarm of, say, 100,000 tribesmen comes tearing across the field. They get hit by a barrage of some, say, 7,000 peeler. Good old peeler. The Roman heavy javelins, which would have taken down the front lines and shattered the, the shields of many. Yeah. And then there would be this massive crush where you have these thousands and thousands of Britons... But the Britons couldn't swing their long swords because there was just no room, which is where the Roman gladius, of course, came into its own as a short, stabbing sword. So there just wasn't really much that the Britons could do. I mean, you could also point towards their supposed lack of armour. Most most modern people portray native Britons and basically butt naked, just painted... I mean, picks, the people from Scotland, the picks are called painted people in Latin. It's what the what's what it means. So indeed, indeed. Um, yeah. So they really didn't stand a chance if they were in the front line of the of the charge. Yeah, up up against a, a heavily armoured, well disciplined, tight fighting force of 
of Roman legionaries, yeah, they're always going to struggle. So yeah, once once they uh, hit this Roman wall and started getting beaten back, they couldn't get out because the women and children in their ringside seats formed a massive blockade, and the slaughter was terrible. It was catastrophic. Yeah. Tacitus's numbers are again presumably well, dubious, yes. but he reckons that a little less than eighty thousand Britons fell at the Roman cost of just 400 soldiers. That's a ratio. It's got to be one of the most ridiculous ratios in the history of warfare. That's worse than cannon. Yeah. I mean, even if you half the Britain numbers and double the Roman numbers, it's still ridiculous. Yeah. And because it's not because they just killed the men, because supposedly the Romans, they didn't just take women prisoner, they slaughtered the women and the children and animals as well. And the baggage animals, yeah. Which supposedly, obviously, uh, points towards how much they really despise them. Well, exactly. Because usually it'd be common practice to enslave them and sell them for profit or yes. whatnot. But they apparently they just went about massacring man, woman, child, even animal. But they must have just been so incensed by the treatment that the Britons inflicted on the veterans at Camulo Well, you, you can imagine maybe a lot of them had wives and family who were chilling back in Colchester or London. Yeah, quite possibly. So, yeah, perhaps not surprising, but still pretty brutal. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so Boudicca probably made it off the battlefield, but didn't survive much longer at all. Tacitus has it that she ended her life by poison. Dio has it that she fell ill shortly after the battle and died and was given a lavish funeral by the Britons. Those could well be different versions of the same story. Um, But either way, her exciting fling of disrupting Roman Britain came to a rather abrupt end on Watling Street. I think part of the problem was that they just got a bit carried away. So they they smashed Camulodunum. Yeah. And they thought, great, let's go to London. So they tore up Verulamium on the way through. They got into London... And then they just set about pillaging and Mm. all all sorts of nonsense. And then they sort of came out onto Watling Street in dribs and drabs and thought, oh, yeah, we're invincible. Because it should be said that there was a detachment of Roman legionaries which was posted between Camulodunum and London, I think it was. And they just got annihilated by the Britons. But I think it was only something about 2,000, maybe. Which is still, you know, a useful Roman fighting force, but up against the... Tens of thousands of Britons yeah, wasn't going to do anything. Not much for chance. So they were they were probably uh, emboldened by their their victories, and then just didn't really think about it on Watling Street when mm. charging in, and that was that. Still, though, kudos to Paulinus. He did a pretty good job. He did. He chose his ground well. Trusted in his tactics. Well, yeah. Also, did you know that he afterwards he was actually replaced as governor because they were worried that the Britons would be so annoyed with him, they wanted yeah. to appoint someone more conciliatory with less of a, a past associated with crushing yeah, the natives. Right. So. so I think the Roman government, that they were looking for an excuse to replace him. Yeah. So in, in the months after, he lost a few ships at sea or something. Yeah. So they're like, right, mate, you, you've got to yeah, go. You've got to go. <laughs> Sackable offence, come on. So that, that was him. And yeah, he got replaced by uh, a chap called Petronius Terpilianus, who was much more conciliatory and uh, evidently achieved a satisfactory enough settlement that the tribes of the south never rose in rebellion again. Yeah, and Britain became a Roman province for, well, 
was already a Roman province, but continued to be so until the what was it the start of the fifth century AD until the Romans yeah. left. Four ten. Yeah. When the Romans left. A sad, sad day, but rip the Roman Empire. Yeah, sad century indeed. I mean, it's not to say that Boudicca, her like influence has not ceased to be important since then, or featured a lot in people's histories and as an inspiration. Yeah, she's an icon. To, yeah, yeah. A lot of Anglo-Saxon monks start to mention her once we have texts that are written, because obviously there was a there was a period of we might turn the dark ages where there wasn't a lot that we could learn about that this was the age of the supposed king arthur but um as the anglo-saxons became more and more christianized and started to write about their history um we actually get the odd reference to her. the first is by a guy called gildas who mm. wrote in the sixth century a work called on the ruin and conquest of britain and he was actually quite critical of her because oh. just because she was a pagan and he was a Christian, and he liked oh, Rome for bringing sure. Christianity to to the British Isles. But she's her, her reputation has certainly become more favourable as times gone on. I think it's fair to say. Absolutely. Well, the so Tacitus's annals were yeah. rediscovered during the reign of Elizabeth I. Yeah, and there there was, there was a bit of a a bit of symmetry between her and Boudicca because of yeah. course during Elizabeth I's reign she was required to defend Britain from the Spanish Armada. Mm. foreign threat but I think people quite liked that symmetry did you know this guy called Polydor Virgil Polydor Virgil so he's a guy who was so this is to do with Elizabeth he was um, born in the very late 15th century and he um, was born in Italy actually but he was made um, Archdeacon of Wells in England <laughs> as you do That's a random in those days this was pre, pre the um, dissolution of the monasteries he actually got imprisoned under the reign of Henry VIII for criticising him and uh, Mr. Wolsey. But um, he got released and he actually wrote a work called the Anglica Historia, which mentions Boudicca. And some people think starts this this fascination during the reign of Elizabeth with Boudicca, which helps fan the flames, if you like. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But I think it wasn't until the Victorian era, though, that Boudicca's fame really took on legendary proportions. Partly because they are essentially namesakes. Yes. Buddha is a Celtic word meaning victory, and of course Victoria, uh, Latin for mm. victory. So they're they're identical. Yeah, I mean she certainly got a big revival. There were a number of poems um, written about her. One by Lord Tennyson, another guy pre-Victorian age called William Cowper wrote another poem. But it was for those of you who know London well. There's that statue of her. Um, near Westminster in her chariot which was erected well it was built during the Victorian era but erected just after and it it was built by a guy called Thomas Thornycroft Um, he considered it his own magnum opus it was it was erected in 1902 so just after Victoria by a year but there's a little a little inscription on the plinth from this guy William Cowper's poem um, just called Bodicea an ode which says regions season never knew thy posterity shall sway it's actually a great poem. I would recommend recommend reading it. Oh, look that one up. But yeah, it, it ends saying, Ruffians, pitiless as proud, heaven awards the vengeance due. Empire is on us bestowed. Shame and ruin wait for you. Yeah, it doesn't take doesn't take much brain power to associate, you know, ideas of the British Empire and the change in fortunes mm-hmm. that have come about um between between the sixties AD and the, the Victorian era. But yeah, it's a great statue. Banging statue. Can I have a visit next time we're in London? Yeah. Uh, and also, um, there were a number of ships 
in the Navy that were named after her. Although the last one was in World War Two, so we haven't had any since since then. Oh, that'd be it's such a majestic name for a ship. Yeah, it's great. HMS Boudicca. Imagine that. Yeah. We should um reinstate that. There's also I found a very odd assertion, which I'm obviously ninety nine point nine percent sure is complete fabrication. <laughs> but there's a random story that she's buried. Oh, I was about to say this fact. Between, yeah, platforms 9 and 10 at King's Cross Station in London. (laughs) There is absolutely no evidence for it whatsoever. (laughs) And people think it's something just made up after World War II. So that that late, you know, someone should maybe go digging. So she's at platform 9 and 3 quarters. Yeah, literally. J.K. Rowling got her inspiration for Harry Potter. Maybe she's a wizard. From Boudicca, yeah. Boudicca's a wizard. Yeah. Wow. I really hope that's true. Yeah, I do too. I guess I guess great, we'll never know. No, we won't. I don't think you can go digging up King's Cross Station. It's a really random fabrication to come up with. Yeah, it is rather odd. I I don't I don't know the origin of that. No, um, I don't think anyone knows the origin. I think it's just something that's been just an urban legend made up. Yeah, but cool if true. Interesting, nonetheless. Well, there we go. Have you got any more banging facts um, about Boudicca, about Roman Britain? Well, not about Roman Britain. I um, I was doing some research on the Iceni uh, people. Oh yeah. And you know, I go down a rabbit hole as you do. And there were some suggestions that the Iceni were not necessarily wiped out at Watling Street, but continued to live on in the area of Norfolk and Suffolk and whatnot. And there's a work, which is a biography of a guy called Saint Guthlac. He was an East Anglian hermit who lived in the Fenland during the early 8th century. Um, oh, that's about as obscure as it is. Yes, gets. and it is, stated, it is stated in said biography that on several occasions he was attacked by demons who spoke Britonic languages living there at the time, which for some reason people think was the descendants of the Iceni cursing the Romans and their Christian descendants for getting rid of them. Wow. But, yeah, I mean, he, that's quite an interesting guy, actually. He lived from 674 to 714, is what people people think. And I really did go down a rabbit hole here. So, yeah, he, he, he kind of, he played with politics a bit. So, obviously, he, he was a hermit. <laughs> How is he a politician if he's a hermit living uh, in the Mate, fence? mate, just wait, wait. So, Ethelbald, a nobleman <laughs> from Mercia, was fleeing from his cousin, Chaelred, and Guthlac took him in, gave him sanctuary, on his in his hermit hole, I don't know where he was living at the time, somewhere in, in the fence. In his hovel. Yeah, and Guthlac predicted that Ethelbald would one day become king of Mercia, and um, as a result, Ethelbald said, "You know, if you're right, I'll promise to build you an abbey um, if your prophecy becomes true." Of course, Ethelbald becomes king. Oh, um, so, even though Guthlac had died two years before, he kept his word. And he built, well, he started the, the construction of Crowland Abbey, which is in Lincolnshire. And it is claimed to, well, yeah, this is where I get really deep. It was claimed to have been the first church in England and among the first in the world to have a tuned peal or ring of bells. And in more modern times, the chimes of the bells, which are there now, were the first ever to be broadcast on wireless radio by the BBC on the 1st of November 1925. And at 90 feet, the pool, or aka the ropes, are the longest in England out of any church. <laughs> that, those are some so, spectacular facts. <laughs> you learn something new every day. I got, I got really, really off course there. But, no, that's all good stuff. 
Yeah. So clearly the uh, the demons of the Iceni didn't manage to put off uh, Armangus. No, no. The the the, the crowd and Abbey has stood strong since. Yes, it's, it's still it's still standing. Yeah, it's still standing. Um, well, go and yeah, have a look the, at the, the ropes. Bu- yeah, go and have a look at the ropes and measure them out. Um, supposedly ninety feet long. Wow, we can all get so, yeah. stunned by some ropes. Yeah, who said hermits aren't important? What a legend, Gifwack. Um, actually, and also, I you know similar to well, the, obviously the Anglo Saxons took a lot of Christian inspiration from their Roman ancestors in carrying them over Christianity to the British Isles, and they had a level of admiration for the buildings too. And did you know that in um, Anglo-Saxon poems, the they refer to the you know Roman constructions as I'm not really sure how to read ancient English, but <laughs> they 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 call them the cunning work of giants, which is maybe maybe I'm supposed to pronounce this as Orthanc enter Gewayork, but enter is what Tolkien, being an Anglo-Saxon specialist uses to call the Ents, obviously in Lord of the Rings, as giantage. So, yeah, there you go. That's where the Romans in Britain gave Tolkien the Ents. That is another excellent fact. Yeah. That is some good good digging from you. Yeah, good knowledge. Any spicy facts from you? Uh, I have one moderately spicy fact that I can drop in. Just two chilies. It's it's relatively mild. Okay. Low on the Scovilles. When Claudius invaded Britain, yes, harken back to AD 43. So Claudius only spent 16 days in Britain, but he brought with him a large reinforcement force of artillery and elephants. I think I did know this. And Claudius sacked, well, he, he captured Camulodunum, yeah. Colchester, with elephants, yeah. which I thought was quite cool. Well, have you read Claudius the God by Graves? I have, but too long ago to remember. I think anything. I think I remember him talking about that wow. and bringing so elephants and ri- yeah, riding on elephants. That's interesting. It it appears in uh, Cassius Dio, so it is actually really? legit. It, it, yeah, it's a fairly vague reference in Dio, mm. and he doesn't actually talk about them being used in battle, but he does say that elephants and artillery were in this reinforcement. Yeah, I mean they could certainly help carry around large pieces of kit. Yeah, and I'm sure they'll just else. terrify anyone. Yeah, I mean, imagine being a life. local Iceni tribesman and seeing this and massive seeing horde beast charging at you. You'd panic a little bit, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, interesting. So it's been quite a meandering discussion of ancient Britain, Roman Britain, Anglo-Saxon Britain, strange hermits. Hermits and bells. Hermits, bells, long ropes, all sorts. It's all good stuff. Maybe some things you didn't know about Boudicca and what she got up to in Roman Britain. I do hope you have had a pleasant time listening to us rattling off Strange Fact. And I also hope that you will join us again. You can't say you haven't caught up with the previous podcast episodes because we've given you ample time to do so. It's only been about eight months or something. Yeah, but I hope we'll produce the next one in a much shorter time. Yeah, let, let's try and get it out at least within 2022. I reckon we can do that. I think that's, yeah, I think that's good. That's realistic. All right. Well, 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 Well,